Well, this is the first week in our series through Genesis, and uh, we're going to be in Genesis for a long time, and it's going to be good. Uh, This is the Lord's word, and he is good in all he says. As we begin this series, though, as you think about even the word Genesis, the word Genesis simply means beginning. And I think we understand how important beginnings are. Like even, even just on a basic level, how you begin a day may end up showing you how you're going to end your day. But it, if I can use a different illustration with, with this building here. Uh, some of you, maybe many of you know this, and I'm sure many of you don't know this, but when this building was being built with its uh, foundation, uh, the, the people who were putting in the foundation, it was discovered by the construction management company that they, I think it was two or three of the walls, they didn't have the correct measurements. And they were just going to not tell us about that. But thankfully, the construction management team saw that, forced them to correct that, and said to us that if that hadn't been corrected, then we would have seen cracks in this building uh, within five years of this being built, which would have been next year already. Foundation is important, right? And as I have even studied Genesis more over the last couple of years, I've seen how valuable, how important, and how foundational the book of Genesis is. That, that seeds of doctrines that are going to permeate throughout the scriptures are found in the book of Genesis. And that if, if we don't understand this foundation, we ourselves might start getting cracks in our beliefs or cracks in our lives. So Genesis is extremely important, but I don't want to just say Genesis is really important and, and try to motivate you through fear that you might have cracks in your life. I want to give you positive motivation as well for knowing this book of Genesis. Many of you participate in discipleship groups. If you don't, I want to encourage you to do that. But this uh, segment, this semester in discipleship groups, I think some, many, most, maybe all, um, as they're studying through Nehemiah, are going to want to encourage us to memorize a certain passage of Scripture. And I want to share with you that passage of Scripture. And if you as a discipleship group leader said, oh, I wasn't planning on doing it, here's my motivation, okay, Um, that we can learn this passage. But I want to read it to you, and then I'll explain why this passage relates to Nehemiah and it relates to the book of Genesis. Paul is writing, the apostle, to the church in Rome, and it says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. And not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another and in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify God, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What 
do these words have to do with discipleship groups going through Nehemiah? What do these words have to do with studying Genesis? It's actually really intriguing to me because what, what Paul's emphasis is, is on how we ought to care for one another within our church family and how we ought to love one another within our church family. And then Paul jumps to the Old Testament and he says, whatever was written in that Old Testament time period was written for our encouragement and exhortation so that we would be unified with one another now. So, so Nehemiah or the book of Genesis is written with the intent that we would be encouraged that God has had a plan to rescue and save people. And now we in the 21st century, we're a part of that plan. He, by his mercy and grace, has drawn us in. And now not just I am a part of that plan, but we are a part of that plan. We have trusted in Christ. And so therefore, with the grace that God has given to us, we want to show that grace to one another. And so Paul says, may this unity abound. So, so why would studying the book of Genesis be so important? I, I, I gave the illustration of the foundation. It's a beginning book. And also because God has given this book to us so that we might find our encouragement in him and seek to encourage and build up one another. That's why we look at Genesis. Now today, as I look at uh, this sermon today, I'm not jumping straight into Genesis 1 this morning. What I want to do is I want to give an overview. So think of an airplane at 37,000 feet. What does the terrain of Genesis look like? And then next week, we land, and then we look at that terrain. So I want to get the overview of the book of Genesis. And what we see here in this book, I believe, is that God reveals his character, humanity's nature, and his resolute purpose in rescuing rebels. This is what we see in the book of Genesis. And Genesis can be broken up into three types of sections. I'm going to wait for a second because I know some people take notes and they get mad at me for moving to the next slide before they're ready. Oh, I see. Look at, look at those studious people in the front row. And I'm going to move to the next slide, and you're going to look at the other person and make sure you get it, okay? The three sections of Genesis, creation and fall, humanity's continued rebellion in chapters 4 through 11, and then God's chosen people. Now, I'm going to move the slide here. Don't worry. Those words are going to show up again, Okay. We're going to start by talking about the creation and fall. And I'm actually going to spend the most of this sermon on these first three chapters here. We start with creation and fall. And actually, we start with the whole book of Genesis. If you know the beginning of Genesis, can you just say it with me? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created. Now, Moses, who wrote the book of Genesis, does not start off his letter trying to argue for the existence of God. Moses starts off this, this book by assuming the existence of God. He's not going to argue for it. God exists. In the beginning, God. Now, what Moses does in this first chapter and throughout the book of Genesis, but especially in the first couple of chapters, is Moses reveals things 
uh, uh, essential truths about the character of God that we need to understand are foundational to who he is. And so what Moses does when he, he starts off and says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he goes on and describes what God does in creating, we see that God actually is sovereign and self-sufficient. So in the creation, we see God is sovereign and self-sufficient. Now, when I say sovereign, I need to define that because the Bible is going to go on and describe what sovereignty means. If you think about the late Queen of England, she was referred to as the sovereign over the British Empire. And, and, and what that means is that she had rule over that, uh, the, the colonies and everything that Britain took responsibility for around the world. When I say, and when the Bible says God is sovereign, that's not all it means by sovereignty. It does include that God is over everything that has been created, seen and unseen. Because God has created it all, he rules over all. But sovereignty also includes within it that God is actively engaged in every single part of creation, so much so that everything that has happened, everything that will happen, goes through his sovereign ordination of things. He is sovereign. And he is self-sufficient. One of the words for God in chapter 1 means that he is self-sufficient, meaning that God never, need, never needs or needed anything outside of himself in order to give him meaning, purpose, or uh, of any kind. He's never needed anything outside of himself in order to do something. God is completely within himself sufficient. And so then he, within his own self-sufficiency, then creates out of nothing. Not because he needs this creation, not because he's lacking, but because in his creating, it reveals his glory and his splendor and his sovereignty and his sufficiency. God is the uncreated creator. Now Genesis moves on and says that waters are over the face of the earth. And in ancient culture and in the biblical writings, many times when water is mentioned and floods, that is referring to chaos. And what, what we're understanding is that God brings the waters together and makes order from this chaos. I don't have this on the screen behind, but as you add to your list, you can say God is powerful. He can do what no other in creation can do. He can bring the waters together and create order. What we also see in these beginning chapters, well, let me, let me, let me say this. He's sovereign, self-sufficient, self and powerful, which should cause us to have awe and even fear. Whoa. This is this God. He can do whatever he wants to do. But then we also see in the beginning chapters that he is gracious. He's gracious. He creates a beautiful world in a glorious universe. And the author, Moses, is writing in such a way to show that creation is this cosmic temple that humanity gets to experience the height 
of joy because they get to see and know and understand the beauty and majesty of God. Listen, God is the most glorious and beautiful and best being. And God isn't hiding himself from humans. He's revealing himself. That's grace, right? That God would show himself to humanity. And so Moses writes in such a way that this creation is this cosmic temple. And you say, how do we know that? Well, you have to kind of jump outside of Genesis to know that. But if you go outside of Genesis and you read about the building of the tabernacle or the building of the temple, you find similar things in the tabernacle that you find in Eden. You find cherubim. You find um, a tree of life in there. And, and you find God's glory that comes down into that tabernacle. And so creation is this temple for God and Eden is like the Holy of Holies where God descends down and walks with Adam and Eve. And in this Eden, in this area of, of, of beauty and sinlessness, we find that life comes from there. When, God, when God's glory comes down, there's life. So God is life-giving. He creates Adam. He creates Eve. And so here we have God, his character being revealed in Genesis. And then we move on and we see humanity and their character revealed. Like, what's, what's the point of human beings? Well, we're told right in chapter 1 that human beings are created in God's image. Meaning that, and this is just a general definition here, but that human beings uniquely display God's glory unlike any other creature in creation. We are unique amongst all of created beings. And God creates them, male and female, to shine forth his glory in his image together. And so there, in his image, they receive God's glory and they reflect his glory in this temple. What we discover as part of being in the image of God is that human beings are vice regents, which might sound like a fancy term, and it kind of is, but in other words, that means that they rule, they're intended to rule under his rule. That human beings are intended to take the rule of God and listen to him and then, and then do what he calls them to do because that's what we're made for. And then we also see in these early chapters, that Adam and Eve were created for fellowship with God. In the garden, God came down and walked and talked with them. We were created not just to know information about God. Do you know that? that, that that's not the culmination of our existence. Ooh, I can articulate these things about God. I know that he's sovereign. I know that he's self-sufficient. I know, no, we were created to commune with God. That, that is mercy and grace of God, too, is it? Not hiding himself, but revealing himself and having his arms open wide to welcome us into a relationship with him, the creator of all. That's astounding. As we see this idea of us being rulers under his rule, we ought to also see here that human beings were not created to be self-sufficient. Did you hear that? God is self-sufficient. We are not. 
we are under him and therefore we are created as dependent beings. It's like what it says in the New Testament. In him we live, move, and have our beings. We are utterly dependent on God for the breath we breathe. He's the one that gives us life. He's the one that sustains the life. But in the midst of this dependent relationship, he's merciful and gracious and then, and then calls us to also be life-giving creatures. Not in the same way that God gives life, but he does tell Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. With what? With what? People. Other human beings. That we have been given the privilege to be able to have children and, and, and to have more image bearers in this world so that, so that the whole world would shine forth the image of God. So humanity is created with these realities in mind. But we know as the story goes on, Adam and Eve were tempted by Satan, and Satan coming in the form of a serpent. And all because Adam and Eve are the pinnacle of creation, therefore all of creation falls. So humanity is fallen. Humanity is broken. Creation is broken. And so the Apostle Paul says in Romans that all creation now is subjected to futility, vanity. And as a result of Adam and Eve's sin, God punishes Adam, he punishes Eve, and he punishes the serpent. But even in the midst of his punishment, he shows mercy. But I do want you to get this, that God does punish sin, which shows another aspect of his character. God is just. God can't just wink at sin or say, oh, what, whatever, no big deal. It is a big deal. God is just, but his justice never, never takes away the reality of his other characteristics. He is also merciful. And so in the midst of him stating the punishments in, in Genesis 3, God is speaking to Satan and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And essentially what God is saying is that there is going to be a seed that comes from the woman, a child that comes from the woman that is going to crush, that's going to crush the serpent's head. But he is going to be harmed in the process. The serpent crusher, seed of the woman, will come. And actually I believe Adam believes this promise of God. Why do I say that? Do you know what happens after God declares these punishments? We read that Adam names his wife. He doesn't just call her woman. At that point in time, he names her, what? Eve, which means the mother of all living. What? No way. She, she took the fruit. And, and, and then she gave it, handed it to Adam for him to take. If anything, she's the mother of death. Right? Yet Adam believes the promise of God and defies even those realities that have happened based on the promise of God. There is going to be a seed to come from a woman that is going to 
rescue us from the brokenness, who is going to forgive us of our sins. Therefore, Eve is the mother of all living. He believes the promise of God. Now, don't, don't miss that point. It's not only important that Adam trusts in God and his promises. Throughout Genesis and also the rest of scriptures, we find that belief, faith, dependence is absolutely essential for every single human being. We can't rescue ourselves from the problem. We can't rescue ourselves from our own sinfulness. God is the rescuer. And only through turning to him in dependence do we find for grace and forgiveness and hope. Now in Genesis, after this takes place, Moses then starts writing genealogies. And many of you know why, but just to make clear, the reason why he starts writing in genealogies is because now we're looking for the seed of the woman. Where is the serpent crusher? When is he going to come? And that's where we move on into chapters 4 through 11, humanity's continued rebellion. The genealogies move forward and you have a, a comparison and a contrast of sorts between Cain and another brother, another son of Adam and Eve, Seth. Now remember, Cain killed his brother Abel. And so Abel's not the serpent crusher. He died and he stayed dead. And Cain isn't the serpent crusher. He actually ends up submitting to, to Satan in his ways. And so then you have Seth that comes along. And you have these two genealogies that kind of go side by side. And when you get to Seth's genealogy, or, or, or I'm sorry, Cain's genealogy, it ends with a man by the name of Lamech. And Lamech is so wicked that he boasts in how vengeful he can be. And the way it's written in Genesis is he's boasting how vengeful he can be in front of his multiple wives. Why is he doing that? Because it's like he's saying to them, if I can be that vengeful towards other people, you watch out, ladies. I can do it to you. Is, is, he, is he ruling well under God's rule? Is he treating those women as fellow image bearers of God? No, and we find within that genealogy, humanity is fallen. Humanity is following their own ways. They're not faithful as vice regents and rulers. They've become, instead of life-giving, they've become murderous. And then you get the contrasted line with Seth. And that doesn't mean Seth's line is morally perfect. You're going to see that's not the case. But Seth's line also arrives at a man named Lamech, and he's a different one. And Lamech ends up fathering a man by the name of Noah. And we're told that Noah ends up trusting, he trusts the Lord. Now that's unique. Trust, just like Adam, trusts God. Noah trusts God as well. And you can wonder, is Noah the serpent crusher? And we'll talk about that in a moment. But I want you to hear how God describes the time period in Noah's day. He actually says that all the thoughts and intentions of the hearts of people was only evil continually in Noah's day. It, it sounds as if Noah is like the only one who trusts the Lord. All the thoughts and intentions of the heart of man is only evil continually. But 
Noah trusts. I just want to camp out a little bit on that phrase because some people might say, whew, well, I am so glad that we're not like the people in Noah's day. And if you think that, then you may not realize that actually after the flood of Noah, you know, the world has been annihilated because of God's justice and punishment for sin. The same phrase is used for humanity afterwards. All the thoughts and intentions of the heart are only evil continually. This is one reason why I believe the doctrine that's called total depravity. What that means is not that every human being acts out as sinfully as they possibly could, but what it does mean is that every human being from conception to birth does not want to honor God and give him all the glory he deserves. At best, at best, I think, human beings would really like for God to be their co-pilot and like little support system for what they want to do. But they don't want God to be their sovereign. They don't want him to rule over them and they don't want to give him all the glory and they want to kind of do certain things to impress God or do certain things that give them value and worth instead of finding their value and worth in him. This is humanity. This is what the story of Noah shows us. But Noah trusts. He trusts the Lord, and even though he has not seen rain, he builds an ark. And God sets aside animals and Noah's family brings them into the ark and God brings this flood and what we have in the story of Noah is really a mini new creation account because in the story of Noah we hear that the waters cover the earth where did we hear that phrase before oh Genesis 1 the waters cover the earth and now the waters cover the earth again and then we read in the Noah account that the Spirit moves over the waters. And so now they can walk on dry land. When did the Spirit do that before? Oh, Genesis chapter 1. So, so we have a new creation account. But what we find is that the problem is not just the environment. Noah is not the serpent crusher. Because Noah then goes off and rebels against God. Another one of his sons clearly rebels against God. And so Noah just becomes a pointer towards a serpent crusher that's going to come. More genealogies follow now. We're still tracing, looking for this one. And then comes the Tower of Babel. All the people had a unified language. And what are they wanting to do? They're wanting to build a tower to heaven. Just like, in a way, Adam and Eve, they want to ascend to the heights of deity. They want to make a name for themselves. They're not submissive under God and his rule. They're not worshiping God. They're not dependent on God. And yet God shows them mercy. God shows them mercy by dividing the languages, actually. Because he will not allow them to live in uh, their version of reality. They can't defy God and be okay. People groups are spread out. Many nations come about. 
And then there's this one nomadic people that God reaches out to reveal his glory to. And this type of people isn't something you would consider glorious, and that leads us into the third section, God's chosen people. God again now is bringing order from chaos. God chooses chooses a pagan man by the name of Abram, and God declares promises to Abram. Abram leaves his family, leaves where he lived, and goes to follow after God, not knowing exactly where he's going, but he seems to trust God. God eventually changes Abram's name to Abraham, and God promises that through him all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. So we know that the seed of the woman is going to come from Abraham in his line. And we're told that Abraham believes. He trusts the Lord. And at a certain point in time, we come to a critical verse in the book of Genesis that says, he believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. Belief is not something that is something impressive that we do to God, right? It's like the only thing we do that's a non-act, so to speak. We just say, I can't save me. I can't bring about these promises. I can't rescue me. I look to you. I trust you. And what we're told in Genesis 15 is God looks at faith and says, I count, I consider that righteousness. I will put righteousness to your account. Even though, was, was, was Abraham perfect? Had Abraham sinned? We read stories of his sins. And yet God will say, you're righteous. Why? Because through faith, God gives grace and declares one righteous. God eventually changes Abram's name to Abraham, makes this promise that there's going to be this seed that comes from the woman. Abraham waits until he's very old, 100 years old, to receive the promised son, Isaac. And then he has the son, and as the son is uh, still young, God says, go sacrifice your son. And we're told in the scriptures that Abraham chooses to sacrifice his son because he believed God could bring him from the dead. That's faith, (laughs) right? But then God stops his hand. No, don't do it. And what we discover is that story is a pointer towards the serpent crusher, that there's going to be one son that's going to come that won't be spared the sword, that won't be spared death, and will come back from the dead. Isaac then has a son, Jacob. Jacob is tested by the Lord in various ways. And eventually you get to this point where it seems like Jacob no longer believes God simply because he's his father's God, but he believes God because he's his God. He trusts the Lord. And then Jacob has many sons. And his family is a mess in so many different ways. And his sons are very jealous of one child in particular, Joseph. So jealous that they make it look like he died, and they tell his dad he died, and Joseph is actually being sold into slavery in Egypt. Joseph, by God's sovereignty and providence, 
God raises up Joseph in the land of Egypt to become the second in command in the Egyptian empire. The brothers don't know it until there's famine in the land. They go to Egypt. Eventually, Joseph makes himself known to his brothers. I'm your brother. <gasps> We're dead. Right? But that's not what Joseph says. Instead, Joseph's response is, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. God actually intended all of those circumstances, but his purposes were good, whereas the brothers' purposes were evil. And what Joseph does, because he trusts God, he forgives his brothers, embraces them, and then says, come, bring your families, bring my father, bring everyone down to Egypt so for, for a period of time so that we can be rescued from the famine in the land. You can wonder, is Joseph the serpent crusher? Is he the one? He, again, is just another individual that's pointing to, pointing to the serpent crusher, the one who is going to go down to Egypt and come back and rescue. Because Joseph dies and he stays dead. And really, that's how the book of Genesis ends. Joseph's dead. The people are in Egypt. But there's another really interesting theme in the book of Genesis that I, I want to bring out briefly right now. And that is that the word east shows up many times in Genesis. When Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, we're told they head east. And as you read in Genesis, directions of where people go, it's like east, 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 east. It's like they're going further and further and further and further and further away from the Lord. And yet God still reaches these rebels who are moving away from his presence. When we move beyond Genesis and we get to the building of the tabernacle, the place where the people of Israel are going to uh, worship God and God is going to show his presence. What's the direction that the door of the tabernacle faces? You know, it's east. It's, it's like God saying, my presence is available to you. I'm opening my door to you. Come, come back home. Come back. And so in that tabernacle, you have the sacrifices. And many of those sacrifices, when put together, is a meal so that people can come to the table of God. Now, at that point in time, it was only the priests who could do that. But it's still a picture to the people. Come home. Human beings were made for home. They were made for fellowship with God. This serpent crusher is going to come. And this serpent crusher is going to make it not just so that priests can enter into the presence of God, but he is going to ensure that every single person who trusts in him will enter into the presence of God. So ultimately what I want to say here is that the book of Genesis points forward, shouts forward to Jesus Christ, who is the serpent crusher. I want to just state a few ways in which Genesis screams, look to Jesus. And I'm just going to read them here. They're on the slides behind. And if you want to take notes, just take a picture. 
Jesus is the one who is God in the flesh, who will be able to reconcile humans to God, the one who is the seed of Eve who is going to bring people back to God. You need someone in the flesh. The seed of the woman has to be a human being. Jesus is that one. Jesus is the one to come who will rule under God's rule. Jesus is the one who himself will be born with the spirit hovering over the waters of the woman's womb. You hear that? It's another, it's a new creation that is taking place over Mary's womb. Jesus is the one who came in the flesh and was dependent, not rebellious on the Father and the Spirit. He's the one who could actually give life because he is life. He's the one who is also sovereign, self-sufficient, and judge. He's the one who ensured the floods of God's wrath in the place of sinners, who, who endured the floods of God's wrath in the place of sinners. He became for people the ark of protection so that we could experience God's life and mercy. He's the one who brings us to God, not by telling us, impress me and build a tower. But instead, he came to us to take us home someday as we humble ourselves before him. And he is the one who has promised to set all who trust in him free and to count them as righteous through faith in him, the promised seed. This is Jesus. And as we go through this series, we're just going to see it all the various ways that the serpent crusher, seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, is pointed to. And I pray that that will encourage us, if you're a believer in Christ, encourage you so that you will then know that you have been set free by Jesus and you want to encourage each other here, as Paul says in Romans. And if you're someone who hasn't trusted in Christ, I hope that you would see the beauty and majesty of Jesus and that you would turn to him and trust him today. Because someday, someday, the Bible tells us there is a future new heaven and new earth, and that is going to be the perfect cosmic temple. The gate will never be closed, always open, for any of God's children to enter. We are referred to as a kingdom of priests who will rule under his rule for all eternity. And we will be able to savor the beauty and majesty and glory of God in a world where there is no longer chaos. That he truly brought all the floodwaters and settled it forever. That's a glorious day. So I hope you see that Genesis serves as the book of beginnings. You see how it shows the character of God, the nature of humans, and how God is resolute in rescuing rebels. He could have given up. He, he could have stopped and just said, I'm done. I'm done with you. But may we, strength, may we be strengthened then to show this mercy and grace to one another in the church so we shine brightly to the world that our God saves. Ventura, stand with me and hear these concluding words of blessing from our God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.